bum bum bottom 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 bum b
you have to come to terms with the fact that your taste and your spouse's taste aren't always going to line up. And while Hellboy was very much a Brad thing, not a Lisa thing. Right. And it was really the X-Men where we came together on. I'm actually going to dispute that. I would say the turning point in our relationship with comics is the ultimate Spider-Man run you lent me. Brian Michael Bendis, Mark Bagley. Absolutely. That particular run was really more about the melodrama. I could get into the relationship between Peter Parker and Mary Jane. He was struggling with, you know, being awkward in high school and having this crush on the girl next door, but then he gets these powers and they give him confidence. And So you read that before we started our book club with Astonishing X-Men, the Joss Whedon stuff? Yes. We might have read that when we were still dating. I think I might have read that when we were dating. And then um, after we got married, I wanted to have like a more engaged conversation with with comic books. So I started the Graphic Novel Book Club, which which still continues to this day. We're actually going to a meeting later today um, where it's just a group of mostly non-comic book people reading comic books and discussing them. And so I've been reading comic books for over a decade now, but I still feel like I've barely scratched the surface on what comic books are. And my (laughs) knowledge, and this will come up a lot, and I'm super self-conscious about it. I need to get over it. I am not all-knowing. I am not, I'm not Oracle. Um, I, like... My knowledge compares nothing to Brad's knowledge. He is like the IMDb of comic books. That's not true. I don't, think so. Don't, don't oversell it because <laughs> if uh, our listeners start uh, fact-checking everything I say, they're going to find a lot of uh, 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 gaps in my memory. And, and the truth is the X-Men were incredibly important to me uh, in my preteen uh, middle school years, mm-hmm. um, but I've I, I don't really read them uh, on a regular basis right now. And my history with them, like with a lot of series that go on for decades, uh, is complicated. But, you know, why are we starting this podcast off with Scott and Gene? Um, those, that was the couple when I was 12, 13 years old that I totally invested myself into. Uh, my first crush with anyone was not with a human, but was with a two-dimensional character in the form of Jean Grey. I find I, that so flipping cute. <laughs> That's entirely too cute. But it's it's 100% true. All my first crushes came from those comic books, from that melodrama. I think that's a perfect word. That is what comic books thrive on. And Jean Grey was my first crush. Mary Jane was my second crush. The two great Marvel redheads. Aww. Uh, I fully invested myself into the relationships uh, between those fictional characters. And uh, whenever they uh, faltered in their love or hit a snag, uh, I was crushed. And, you know, oh, my God, if if one were to suddenly die, it, w- it was a bad scene. And in <laughs> Jean Grey's case, uh, I had a lot of disappointment. Yeah. Um, before our relationship, my only interaction with the X-Men were the movies. Um, I, you know, I would go to movies, especially in college. People would just go to movies, so I would go to the movies. So I didn't find them particularly entertaining or memorable. 
Especially uh, when Scott and Jean are concerned. I mean, they're terrible. Landy McBlantstown. Ugh. Um, but our first meeting of our Ultimate Justice League of the Graphic Novel Book Club was uh, Uncanny X-Men, but it was the Joss Whedon run. It was Astonishing X-Men. Oh, excuse me. Another adjective spinoff. Oh, it's so confusing. But <laughs> it was the Joss Whedon run, which was an easy in for me because big Firefly fan, enormous Buffy fan. So, of course, I'm going to love this is pre- me too. <laughs> love Joss Whedon. I still love the body of his work. And um, so my first X-Men couple was Kitty Pride in Colossus. Uh, well, I mean, in Astonishing X-Men, Scott is with Emma Frost, the White Queen at this point. Gasp. <gasps> so, yeah. We may address that in a later episode. Yeah, much later. How, how many times? How many ca- times can we turn back to the X Men? Because we have uh, Scott and Jean, we have Jean and Wolverine, uh-huh. we have um, Scott and Emma Frost. Yep. Uh, we have Professor X and Lilandra. Yep. We have Colossus there, and Kitty Pryde. There's a Pride. lot. If you just if you are going to list off every uh, shipping of a character. Uh, with another character in X-Men. Is that how you use shipping? Yeah. I'm not a millennial, so you I don't know. You nailed it. I am a millennial. Okay, good. Just barely. Um, if, if you're going to list all of those couples, we're going to be here all day. And the goal is to keep this at an hour length, which we're not going to do this first episode. No. But second episode, we have we all will. of the setup. And, <laughs> and since this is technically a counseling session, should it be a 50-minute hour? Oh, oh uh, that's a little too cute and gimmicky, Lisa. Oh, I am the embodiment of cute and gimmicky. Uh, so, but here's the deal. Uh, every month on this podcast, we're going to take uh, four episodes of this show and break down a relationship. So for the first month of the Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast, we're focusing on Scott and Jean, and then the next month, we will jump over to another couple. Uh, We still have to discuss that, but I'm thinking Saga, Lisa. Absolutely, we're gonna go to a non-Marvel couple. Yes, but we gotta start Marvel. We're Marvel zombies. Yeah, first and foremost. And and X-Men. You know, we could have done Mary Jane and Peter Parker. We could have done Don and Norrin Rad. We have to save that until we've got our formula down. I want to do that couple, like, at peak podcast capability (laughs) because I love them so much. Don't say that. The listeners are going to turn away. No, no, they're going to be growing with us. Okay. This is the beginning of a relationship. All right. We have to put our vulnerabilities out there. Vulnerabilities are, you know, intimacy. So... Month one of Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast is Scott Summers and Jean Grey. Mm-hmm. First episode, we're going to focus on one arc. The next episode, we'll focus on another arc. And I feel like the only place to begin with Scott and Jean is in their most famous and uh, gut-wrenching emotional arc, Chris Claremont and John Burns' The Dark Phoenix Saga. Nice, nice. I endorse that, not just because we're spouses, but because it's a great idea. Um, We're also, another element of our podcast, like, we're not experts. Our marriage, we're nailing it. (laughs) I'm only, but I'm only an expert in being married to Brad. Um, So, so, um, we're going to consult love experts through the form of different uh, 
couple self-help books, I guess. This I is where I feel uncomfortable. Okay. Yeah, I know. Brad is very <laughs> anti-self-help. Um, but I'm a rebel. He is. He can't help himself. Um, so our first expert is going to be Gary Chapman of the best-selling book, The Five Love Languages. Yeah, okay, okay. I did not read it, Lisa. Yes. I did take the test. Uh-huh. Oh, good. And we're going to get to so the results. So I do know my love language. Very good. Okay. Very good. So, um... And what, we're going to apply what Gary Chapman talks about in the five languages to Scott and Jean this month, and then next month, if we do Saga, which we're going to do Saga, we'll pick another self-help Expert, book? yeah. Okay, so we're not trapped with Gary Chapman for the rest of our lives. After reading the five love languages, I would not want to be trapped with Gary Chapman anywhere. Ooh, throwing shade, throwing Ooh, shade. Yeah. So um, the idea of the five love languages, Gary Chapman's theory is based on the on the idea that initial romantic love fades. So when you first meet someone and fall in love, you have all of these chemicals and endorphins that make you feel like you're walking on air. But uh, after, typically after marriage, that like romantic stage fades and that's when couples end up on the rocks. And um, so after that point, he submits that that love has to be a choice and love has to be an action that you do every day to uh, keep the, the marriage functioning. So that's his idea. So the tools he uses is, first and foremost, the five love languages. Now, the five love languages are like part of the zeitgeist, I feel. I see them everywhere. I mean, I know the title of the book, but right. I don't know what the five love languages are. Okay, yeah, but I think uh, that- In fact, I still don't. I just know what mine is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that even if you haven't necessarily like- read the five love languages, lots of people have an interpretation of what their love language is and have probably taken the online quiz, which you can find easily with a quick Google. Um, So the five love languages are words of affirmation, which is like saying, I love you, compliments, um, praise, that that kind of thing. Scott Um, Summers needs a lot of that. (laughs) The second one is physical touch. So that could be, you know, right? Sexy, sexy sex. But that can also mean hugs, pats, holding hands, that kind of thing. Um, quality time, which means sitting together and really talking and feeling understood. Uh, gifts, which is, you know, gifts. And then acts of service. So um, doing good deeds for your spouse, having your spouse do good deeds for you. So that's like the main idea, and everybody knows about that. The thing that I had not heard of but is a main theme in the book is the idea of the love tank. What? So every person has inside of them a love tank that is longing to be full. Uh And um, and the way that it is— I like to get mine empty. (laughs) The way that it is filled is having someone— speak to you in your love language, and that helps fill your tank. Oh, 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 oh. So I should require from you... Don't tell me your love language yet. I know, but once I tell you my love language, to keep me happy and to keep our marriage going, you need to fill that tank with that love language. Exactly. Don't put any, like, uh, you know, nacho cheese down there or whatever. (laughs) No, there's no substitute. (laughs) There's no substitute for love when it comes to the love tank. Um, so, um, 
So when somebody's love tank is empty, they tend to feel sad, they tend to act a little needy. Sometimes they can act um, kind of, they can lash out in certain ways. Um, so yeah, and so one thing he recommends a lot is if you're, if you're working on your marriage with your spouse is to just check in every once in a while and go like, hey baby, what's your love tank level? And then you give a level zero to 10. And then, you know, so let's hmm. say, okay, I go, hey Brad, what's your love tank level? And you say like six, you know, then I can, then my, I'm supposed to respond with, well, what can I do to fill your love tank? BJ's. Yeah, that's what I figure. <laughs> so, I, like, I can I can see, like, both sides of the couple really have to be in on the love tank idea just because of, like, you know, like, if your love language is, like, acts of service and your spouse goes, like, well, what can I do to fill your love tank? And you're, like, laundry. You know, like, your, your, your spouse might be a little... You <laughs> this know, is going to be really, really interesting. I'm going to try to be open-minded... Uh, to Mr. Chapman's uh, words and his thoughts and ideas. Um, but I, I, I really am hesitant to all this stuff. I, I feel like I can solve Scott and Jean's relationship in episode one. We're not going to do that. We're going to wait to fix it until episode four. But I think I can do it. I don't require you to be 100% in on, um, on the idea of the love languages, because I do think that there is a seedy underbelly mm. of the love languages that uh, that I think are, reveal themselves in the themes of the Dark Phoenix saga. Oh. Um, You've been doing a lot of work with Mr. Chapman. Oh, yeah. No. Um, I, you got a lot of tabs in your comic. I do. Do not be intimidated with my number of, of tabs. I have, I have one prepared. tab. I have one tab in my... T- Paperback. That's a-okay. So um, (laughs) the last tool that uh, Gary Chapman uses is Christian values. And I'm not talking about like the Fred Rogers warm, fuzzy Christian values where everybody's life has inherent value because they're made in the image and likeness of God. It's the more insidious, heteronormative um, divorce and remarriage is a form of adultery type Hmm. Christian values. Um, and that's where you find this book in Barnes & Noble is in the Christianity section, okay. not the self-help section. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's Also, you know. can find it on the bestseller list for the last decade. Forever. And he's written like a thousand versions. There's like five love languages for teens, five love languages for children. Well, when I took the children. test, it asked me if I was a child. Right. And I was like, no, I'm a man. <laughs> yeah, so um, for most of the book... Like, you just kind of, you get that he's a Christian guy just in that, like, most of the couples that he is assisting are like, I'm 22 years old, and I have, like, three to nine children, and before we got married, me and my husband, we met at church. Like, that's, like, most of it, and um, and they're all heteronormative couples. The, the men feel unfulfilled in... Um, like the men are like, how come my dinner's not on the table? And the women are like, he doesn't talk to me. They're like very typical Got it. kind of cliched relationships. But it doesn't feel like, it feels like closed-minded, but it doesn't necessarily feel damaging. Well, somewhat damaging, but not like full-on monster. 
until you hit page 144. So un- so he doesn't s- s- talk explicitly about his Christianity until page 144, and it's with the relationship of a woman named Anne. So Anne comes to him, and he asks. she asks a very pointed question, and the question is, is it possible to love someone that you hate? And Ooh, um, This he, is very relevant to X-Men. I know, I know. And he <laughs> says, like, what, what's going on with your marriage? And she's like, well, I've been married to my husband for, you know, 30 years. I, I, I don't remember the specific. But I've, we've, we've been married a long time. Our love has completely faded. My mm, husband is sad. non-responsive to me. Uh, he is verbally abusive. He tells me that he hates me. Mm. But I'm a Christian woman. Mm-hmm. I believe that, you know, I don't want to get a divorce because, you know, divorce is not allowed in the church. I'm I'm morally conflicted. And he goes, okay, well, let me think on it. And he go, he finds his answer in the Bible in the idea that Jesus was like, well, you have to love your enemies. And if you give your enemies love, then they will start acting kindly to you. And so uh, he goes, okay, so what are your husband's love languages? And she goes, well, his number one love language is physical touch. When we were dating, we, you know, had sex all the time. Well, maybe not sex because they were Christian. But, you know, like early in our marriage, we had sex all the time. Heavy petting. Exactly, heavy petting. And, um... And now that that has dried up a little bit, um, <laughs> literally. <laughs> and then, um, and he's like, oh, okay, okay, so what do you think is his number two love language? Uh, and his number two love language, he thinks, is words of affirmation. Okay, so he says, okay, let's put your marriage on a trial period of six months. And for six months, you're going you're gonna to start this project with asking your husband, okay, what can we do to improve this marriage? Um, I'm open to suggestions. I want to be a better wife. And you are to um, consider all of his suggestions unequivocally. And then also you're going to try to praise him in one way or another um, with words of affirmation. So, you know, notice what he's doing well and make sure that you praise it. Okay, now in terms of physical touch, you are to have sex with him once a week. And she replies, you know, it's hard to have sex with him because... He tells me that he hates me. Like, I'm not feeling particularly affectionate towards him. And Gary Chapman's answer is, well, this is where your faith has to come in. And you kind of just have to take it. And I was like... Gross. Like, I literally... So I'm reading this at night. This is like my nighttime book. So I'm reading this, like, on my iPad. And at that point, I just slap my iPad shut, toss it across the room, and then proceed to have nightmares all night. And it, it really bothered me, that answer. Sure, of course. And I started thinking... What, 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 what gives uh, Chapman the right to uh, be this voice of reason for people? I mean, what's his he, background? He, Do he, we know? He keeps referring to this background in anthropology. Uh-huh. But think, you'd think that... I took that class. I, you'd think that like anthropology <laughs> would have some kind of universal, multicultural approach, which he does not have. He has 0%. He claims... so. He's saying that this is, like, he, early in his marriage, him and his wife had trouble. Uh, they got over that trouble, and that inspired him to enter the ministry. Does he say what his counseling. love language is? I, I can't remember. Is it BJ's? It probably. It's probably <laughs> sex with a dry, dry spouse. <laughs> but anyway, like, I, I started thinking, like, what if... 
these roles were reversed. Like, what if this was a man going like, my 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 wife is being hateful to me. Her prime love language is physical touch, but like I can't get hard because you know, I'm I. It's hard to be attracted to her when she's being so hateful to me. And then Gary Chapman's answer is going to be, well, you just have to you know put your faith you know in front of you and think about Christ's okay. ripped abs on the cross and bang your wife. And um, yeah, so to me, I just think that he has an extremely limited and old-fashioned worldview that I wouldn't want to apply to our relationship necessarily, and I think it can be abused. So what you're saying is this book we've chosen to apply to the relationship of Scott and Gene Summers, uh, well, I guess they're not married yet, Scott as, and Gene, uh, it's, it's a garbage book? say that it was necessarily a garbage book. I think that there is value in the five love languages in that you want to express your love to your spouse in a way that they're going to be receptive. But I think it's kind of like the force in Star Wars. Like it can be used by the Jedi's for good, but it can also be used by the Sith for evil. So you and I both took the quiz, the five love languages quiz. I'm dying to know what your love languages are. So do you want to guess? Do you want to try to oh, guess? Or is that... Lisa, I l- literally don't know what the other love languages are at this moment. I okay. only know what mine is. Okay. Can I <laughs> guess? I was not lying. Can I guess? Sure. Okay. So you have, you mentioned before the podcast, you had two high love languages. One was a 12 and one was a nine. Uh-huh. Okay. So I'm guessing, and, I, and I'm totally okay with being wrong. I'm going to put that out there. This is this is where this this podcast is going <laughs> to test turn. <laughs> Brad and Lisa's marriage. Okay. Dun, dun, dun. Drum roll. Okay, so I'm going to guess that your number one language is words of affirmation. Is that correct? Incorrect. Shit! Okay, and then <laughs> is it physical touch? Uh, physical touch is my number two. Uh, is your number two. So what's your number one? I'm dying to know. Quality time. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, would, I think I would also guess that your language is also quality time. It is not. What? My number one love language. So I took this quiz. Is it receiving gifts? No, it is not. (laughs) (laughs) Now, so I took this quiz and I was like, oh my God, I am such a monster. Because my number one love language is words of affirmation. And my number two love language is acts of service. Oh, interesting. So, But when you think about it, it does make sense because like... For one thing, I'm extremely needy. I don't think I know two couples that say I love you more than me and you. And maybe that's because when they're alone. I would say mom and dad. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> Not my mom and dad. They love each other very much. But I think they're probably both acts of service. But, like, we affirm each other all of the time. And I ask for affirmation all of the time. And one way to determine your spouse's love language is, like, what does your spouse ask for all of the time? Uh, or complain they don't get enough of. And then acts of service. So one of the things that sometimes when I'm feeling like anxious, like my feeling is, oh my God, I have too much on my plate. And like nothing feels better than you going like, well, do you want me to go across? Like if I'm cooking something and I'm feeling anxious and I forgot something, like nothing makes me feel more elated than you going I can just go across the street and get that for you. And that makes me feel so wonderful. But it's like sad because I'm just like, first I want you to praise me. <laughs> and then I want you to do my bidding. <laughs> uh, I, you know, in, in, uh, because, all right. Um, full disclosure. Yeah. I took the quiz very quickly and I felt like the questions were, 
I could go either way. Right. You know, they would ask, what do you find more meaningful uh, to receive flowers or um, a, a hug? And I'd be like, well, I like both of those, but I guess I like hugging more than flowers. Right. And so I picked hugging. Right. You know. And I think also it, it depends on how you're feeling like at the time. Like I think that Brad and I – get a ton of quality time. And we're really lucky in that way, the more than other couples, because we both work out of the home. So we get a ton of quality time. So maybe just at, in that moment, I wasn't feeling particularly needy of quality time. You know what I mean? So sure. I think it really depends on how you feel at the time. But I do think that words of affirmation is something that, I, like, I, as a performance major at school, like, I run on. Um, so let's talk about how I feel like the love languages can be applied to the X-Men. Um, yeah. So for me, I feel like Scott's love language is acts of service. And <laughs> a lot of his relationship issues with Jean is that she now has the Phoenix Force. She is so powerful. She doesn't really need his help. Yeah, and he's confused by what that Phoenix Force is. All he knows is she's doing things that he cannot possibly understand are happening. Yeah, and I think that he feels threatened that he does she doesn't need him. And um but that's but that's we're, we're applying it in this episode just to the Dark Phoenix right, saga. Right, right, right. And the this might change when other writers come on board to tell their stories. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's true. I also think that um his acts of service uh love language comes a lot from his abandonment abandonment issues. Because, you know, he... Mom and dad died in a plane crash. Except dad is Corsair of the Star Jammers. Hello! Ah! Um, so cool. You know, and he, there was a point of time where he felt he lost his brother. Then, um, so a lot of the way that he expresses his value to the X-Men is he helps them. Which I think is how he ended up the leader, the de facto leader, when... Professor X disappeared. Sure. But and now Professor X is back and, and he's <laughs> criticizing yeah. the way that Scott has been running the X-Men. Yeah. And so that makes that makes him feel very insecure because it's essentially Professor X saying, you have not been helpful. Yeah, Professor you, X is a jerk in this series. Do you know why I think why? Because I think that his love language is also acts of service. <laughs> and he feels like, oh my God, all of this time when I was dead, I was not being of use. And so, and then he sees that Scott has been running the X-Men in not his way. And so he feels like, well, that that's a criticism from Scott of the way that he was choosing okay. to be All helpful. Right. So we're going to get into the Dark Phoenix saga now. Before we do that. No, I want to tell Jean's love language and then Wolverine's love language. Oh, okay. All right. All okay. Right, all right. So I think that Jean's love language is quality time and physical touch. So... Whenever she has an opportunity, um, she she wants, like, when they're alone, she wants to be held by Scott and she wants to hold Scott. And I think that because they work in a group dynamic and so much of their time with the X-Men is spent in a group, I feel like her love tank in terms of physical touch is, like, empty a lot of the time. And then also... That is also deals with quality time because they're yeah. never alone. Well, I mean, Jean Grey feels very empty as a character, for sure. Love tank or not love tank. Right. And that's why the Phoenix Force can go in there and fill it. I also think that, you know, because of the the Phoenix Force, 
There's a lot that she can do for herself. So she doesn't necessarily need acts of service and she doesn't need gifts. She's an, like, you know, she's a very, she can manifest her gifts out of thin air. So she doesn't really need gifts. So acts of service and physical touch, for the most part, are things that she cannot do for herself. So those are the, those are the things that she, she really needs. And I think that those are the things that are exploited by Mastermind when he's being Jason Wingard is he is able to give her that quality time in this time slip mentality. So yeah. he he exploits her love languages to make her fall in love with him, which I think is the dark side of the love languages. Because really, if romantic love doesn't matter and physical and love is just a choice and an action, then any two people can be together and have a functional marriage as long as they're, you know, completing the circuit with the whole love tank thing. Um, yeah, and I think just as a bonus, Wolverine's um, <laughs> love language is, is words of affirmation. And I think that it's like, there's like one, I was trying to find it if, in my multiple tabbies. I was trying to find this moment, but there's like this moment where Professor X just kind of tosses off a, a compliment to the X-Men. And then um, we'll talk about Chris, Chris Claremont and his writing, but he loves the thought bubble. And then um, Wolverine has this little thought bubble. He was like, that was awfully nice of him to say. Like clearly, <laughs> like his heart was warmed. And I it's think- that moment in uh, Avengers Infinity War when Tony Stark just knights Peter Parker as an Avenger in a jokingly uh-huh. w- manner. And then you see on Peter Parker like, how that joke is a tremendous uh, affirmation. Yeah, positively. Yes. Yeah, and then also I think that Wolverine's words of affirmation come from his Napoleon complex. And he's very, <laughs> yeah. like he's... For sure. Small in stature. And he is very susceptible to insults. Like they really aggravate him. Yeah. Where some people, well, other other superheroes have the self-esteem to just kind of banter. Yeah. Like he cannot take banter he gets very um he's very susceptible to insults but he also verbally builds himself up a lot which Uh i think uh uh um is like his way of kind of trying to fill his own love tank which i think gary chapman as a christian would not approve of filling your own love tank but um yeah so so i think that that's wolverine's love language all right okay and then nightcrawler you know he's got god i think nightcrawler and uh gary chapman would get along pretty well oh yeah yeah, they'd, they they'd be hanging out on the roof of the Xavier Mansion, uh, <laughs> praying a lot. Oh yeah. So, okay. So, how do we even set up the Dark Phoenix saga? Can you help us with that? Uh, well, you know, it's it's it is like um, Stanley and Jack Kirby. If if you go back to the formation of the Marvel Universe, their first. You know, groundbreaking series was the Fantastic Four, and the first epic of the Fantastic Four was the coming of Galactus. And I feel like that was in the early 60s, and it took uh, almost 20 years to get to 1980, where the next big event comic happened, and that's the Dark Phoenix Saga. Uh, Chris Claremont, uh, he takes over the X-Men with... What gosh, what issue did he join? He joined on issue number 94. And the Dark Phoenix saga doesn't happen until issue 129. It's uh 129 through 137, the first one being published in January of 1980. Uh, you know, Claremont, he's 
this college graduate in the 60s. He gets hired as an editorial gopher. Uh, he first began to work on the X-Men as an assistant to Roy Thomas, who replaced Stan Lee on the book. Uh, John Byrne, he's a, probably, you know, after Kirby and Steve Ditko, the next Marvel superstar artist. He joins up in 1973 on Iron Fist, working uh, with uh, the Marvel premiere book. Uh, and then, you know, Claremont... And Dave Cockrum there on the book for a while. Cockrum leaves and John Byrne comes on. And that's basically the beginning of the Dark Phoenix saga. Claremont was on the book for 17 years. A lot of people, when they think about the X-Men, they think about Claremont's characters, his stories first before anybody else. Uh, you know, he would go on to spin off a bajillion titles uh, with Excalibur, Wolverine solo series, The New Mutants, the adjectiveless X-Men in 1991. Uh, but before Claremont came on board, the comic was in the toilet financially. Oh. And he revolutionized the the narrative and in doing so in introducing all these different characters to the team um, their popularity skyrockets and, you know, for the longest time, X-Men was the Marvel book. Was, uh, first and foremost, I want to say, even though the Chris Claremont writing is extremely cheesy, I find it very engaging. Like, I love the fact that he loved it. If you look at these pages, they're extremely word dense. Yeah. And it's it takes split. a long time to read it these does. few issues. And it's split like <laughs> 50% dialogue and 50% thought bubbles. So each character. And then like <laughs> captions on top of that. Uh, yeah, and captions it's like, too. Ugh. But I, I feel like where modern comics are a little bit more caption heavy, especially in terms of exposition. Um, a lot of the exposition is done hilariously in dialogue and, um, and then done in thought bubbles. And like, then repeated. Oh, yeah. Each, over and over and over again. Each episode, each issue starts with a recap of the last issue. And I was, I've joined Goodreads and um, I'm enjoying it as a platform, but I, I, I was kind of scrolling casually through the uh Goodreads reviews, and there was a Goodreads review that said, like, X-Men, more like exposition men, am I right? I'm like, you are right, and points to you. 1980 comic books are not 2018 comic books. You cannot approach the Dark Phoenix saga as a modern reader. You have to approach it within the context of the time. Yeah. Um, There's a certain amount of kitschiness to it. Yes, and I think as somebody who loves melodrama, who loves plots and schemes and mm -hmm. kissing, yeah. Claremont's X-Men is tailor-made for you. And you like to read something that is rooted in a time period. And this is very much rooted in an era in a, of American pop culture. Positively. I do think that there is a timelessness to Burns' art. Oh, uh, Burns' amazing. It's absolutely gorgeous. And when you think of these characters, I think that his art style, particularly in terms of Jean Grey and the Dark Phoenix, is I, pretty iconic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. When people think about this book, they think about the moments. They don't think about Claremont's dialogue. It's the same way when we think about 
the old 60s Marvel comic books. We don't necessarily remember uh, what Reed Richards is saying the moment Silver Surfer shows up as the Herald of Galactus. We remember Kirby's panels. We remember Kirby's designs. Just like with this book, the reason it's iconic is because of Burn. Now, not to not to like take a huge dump on Claremont. I think he was revolutionary, to use that word yet again, in the sense that he approached his characters as a method actor, as a method actor that he wanted to be in college and never achieved. He really gets into each person's skull and works them from inside out. And that's why there's so many thought balloons and why we know what uh, Nightcrawler is thinking in a panel that really has nothing to do with him, mm-hmm. but we still check in and go like, is 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 Kurt doing okay with what's happening with Mastermind over here? Mm, turns out no. It does lend a lot when you're just analyzing a relationship between two characters. You do have a lot to work with because you li- Wolverine does not talk or behave like Cyclops. Cyclops doesn't talk or behave like Beast. Beast doesn't talk or behave like Professor X. They're all individuals. And that is something that I think Claremont brought to X-Men that was missing before. Yeah. And I think that it is remarkable. So this was technically a second read for me. The first time I read the Dark Phoenix Saga, I think was on our first trip to San Diego Comic-Con. It was, yeah. Yeah, and I read it, and I absolutely fell in love with it, and I really enjoyed this revisit. So so when did you first read? Uh, I read Phoenix? it sometime in the early 90s. The paperback copy that I have here is my 1991 reprint of the Dark Phoenix Saga. It was sold as a singular graphic novel, not as a collection of the actual comic books that it is. Uh, so I've I've been revisiting this particular paperback since 91, um, and, but I think this was probably my third full read through of the story. And you found it. Really- I mean, I love it. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I do love it. You know, uh, add all those asterisks, uh, to all the issues that you, you may or ha- have with the book because of the time that it came out in, but I really do, uh, adore it. And again, John Burns art. There's that panel of uh, Wolverine in the sewers underneath the Hellfire Club that you see repeated over and over and over again uh, in histories detailing the X-Men. And there's a reason for it. It's you, you want to turn it into a Mondo poster and hang it on your wall. It's yeah, stunning. Absolutely. So just to give our listeners a quick overview of what the plot of the Dark Phoenix Saga is, it starts with... Uh, Jean Grey, she is having these like weird time slips where she is meeting with this guy who is named Jason Wingard and she can't really make sense of it. And so she comes to believe that she is going back in time and reliving the life of an ancestor. Um, but we find out that, in fact, she's being infiltrated by the Hellfire Club. So what is the Hellfire Club? Well, the Hellfire Club is this collection of aristocrats uh, led by uh, a, a panel of, well, mutants. Um, Sebastian Shaw, the Black King, uh, Mastermind, who is Jason Wingard. Right. There's Leland, who has the ability to change your uh, density. 
Yeah, they also have uh, Donald Pierce, who I think is like a cyborg. Is he technically? He's not a He's mutant. not a mutant. No. He, he's uh, anti-mutant. And he, he's, you know, what we're going to learn, he, he's been uh, plotsing and scheming with Senator Kelly, the racist uh, politician. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, so they, they want to infiltrate uh, Professor Xavier's school. And why? Um, <laughs> to rule the world. Because they're evil. Yeah, you they're know, just evil. doing evil things. Yeah. Mastermind was actually one of the original members of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. He used to hang out with Magneto. Oh. But, you know, that broke up. That band disbanded. And now he's with the Hellfire Club. Okay. And what I love about the Dark Phoenix Saga is it really shows how powerful and treacherous that character is. Somebody that I used to dismiss as a kid, but in revisiting... The Dark Phoenix Saga, and looking back at Ed Pisker's uh, X-Men comic that's on stands now, which is a retelling of the entire history of the X-Men hip-hop family tree style. If you're not reading that, you need to. The art is amazing. So good. But reading that and Dark Phoenix, I really appreciate Mastermind as a villain now. And I much prefer him to Shaw, who's totally not interesting. Right. Shaw's power, he has like... Like, if he hits, if he gets hit, he can absorb You know, like in Black Panther, the Wakanda suit, it takes the kinetic energy and redistributes it. Shaw does that. That's his mutant power. Yeah. I think it's also important to mention they have on their side at this point in time the White Queen, Emma Frost. And she's key to how Mastermind is infiltrating um, Jean Grey's mind. Yes. And she will become a major player in the relationship of Scott and Jean over the years. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, so yeah. So, she's being infiltrated. Uh, they also find out. Oh, and then the Hellfire Club is also getting in the way of their... So, they're using the mind tap on Jean Grey to interfere with their recruitment of New mutants. Right. The X-Men learn that in Chicago, there is a child mutant, Mm -hmm. 13 years old, Kitty Pride. That's right. (laughs) And uh, in New York, in the discotheques, Uh is Dazzla. Yeah. So in both of those situations, the Hellfire Club drops in their goons and they interfere So can I just say that the Hellfire goons are my favorite goons? They are so sweet. They are so they are always giving each other words of affirmation and acts of service. And I love (laughs) the fact that they're all identical. They all wear like the same uniform uniform with a mask, but they call each other by name always. Yeah, it's like, uh, hey, Saul. Hey, Jimmy. Hey, Ron. They can, you know, they may look the same to us, but to each other, they are individuals and it is beautiful. Um. Oh, I lost my train of thought. But anyway, so the- The, the goons show up. The goons show up. The X-Men get wise uh, about the Hellfire Club. So the middle of the book is them infiltrating the Hellfire Club, but that's where the master, where Mastermind reveals himself to Scott and turns Jean from into the Black Queen. Actually, yeah, they got married earlier. So, it's confusing. So there, there's a moment where- Mastermind has been entering the uh, psychic realm of Jean Grey, and he's been peeling back these blockers on her powers. And so over the course of the early issues of the Dark Phoenix Saga, Jean's becoming more and more powerful. She's creating portals to other realms. She's manifesting clothes out of thin air, uh, terrifying God-level stuff. 
And the reason she can now start to do this is because of this relationship she's having with Mastermind psychically. And when he pulls the breakers off of her abilities, she erupts into the Black Queen. Right. And she's brainwashed for some reason. Yeah. So she's a Black Queen. They've infiltrated the Hellfire Club. Then Scott figures out how to get into Jean Grey's mind and because they had established a psychic rapport that's right. up on that Monument Valley uh, Butte. That's right. And th- so they are always linked mentally. So uh, he in Jean Grey's mind, he duels uh, Jason Wingard, but Jason Wingard wins the duel. But in seeing her true and love, Nightcrawler's like, "Oh my God, Scott's dead!" Uh, yeah, he turned the page to the floor. Oh. He's back. He's good. Never mind. I freaked out. And um, But in seeing in her mind her true love slain, it wakes her up. She realizes she's being mind controlled. and She, she frees Scott. She frees Scott and the rest of the X-Men. And they are able to. Wolverine pops out of the sewer, stabs a bunch of dudes, terrorizes the guests upstairs. Senator Kelly's like, see, see, mutants are bad. We need to put them into camps and kill them all. That's right. And then they escape the Hellfire Club. Yes. Okay. And everything's A-okay, right? Victorious. <gasps> Not so much because now that all of Jean Grey's mental blockers are down, all of a sudden the Dark Phoenix is unleashed. And the Dark Phoenix appeals to all of her basest needs. Uh, so uh, she w- she hungers for power, she is super effing horny all of the time, and uh, she shoots herself into space and surge of power and eats a stun, and in doing so, pisses off the Shi'ar because now well, she's- And obliterates 13 planets, billions of lives. Yeah, a huge mass killing. <laughs> so- um, She comes back down to Earth. Professor X is like, yo, what is this? No good. Let's do a mental war. They fight. He expunges the Dark Phoenix persona, or at least he puts a damper on it. Momentarily. Momentarily. But the The Shi'ar show up. The Shi'ar show up. They're like, hey, she clearly cannot handle the Dark Phoenix power. They're not wrong. And she's completely destroyed all of these billions of people, so now she must be destroyed. And then Professor X is like, wait, because... I have this relationship with Leandra, who is like the empress of the Shi'ar. I know all of the subtleties of your culture, and I challenge you to a duel of honor. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. But weirdly, he doesn't have to fight in the duel. No. But all of the other X-Men have to fight in the duel. <laughs> they duel, and oh, and It's when, basically like a, a brawl on the moon. Right, and- uh, There's Gladiator, is, and Smasher, and uh, Manta- All these crazy Shi'ar superheroes. And space superheroes. Yeah. And um, what I think is so sweet is Jean Grey goes into this fight um, dressed as Marvel Girl. Yeah. In the green dress with the mask. Brutal. My favorite costume. Heartbreaking. I had a Jim Lee poster on the back of my door when I was in sixth grade of Marvel Girl. Well, the original X-Men, you know. Iceman's there, uh, Angel's there, Beast is there, 
Professor X is there, but front and center, it's, you know, uh, waist to waist, uh, Cyclops and Marvel Girl in those outfits. And I was- outfits strategically ripped and torn. Yes, delicious. Delicious. I love that poster. is not her full bosom, but her, it's very suggestive is what I'm saying. I mean, it's a super sexy poster. Thank you, Jim Lee. (laughs) So- as Marvel Girl, all of this duel has been kind of a cover for Jean Grey to do the ultimate act of love, which is destroy herself <laughs> with her Phoenix powers. And yeah. And then she's dead. It's super sad. And then that's the end of the Dark Phoenix saga. So that's... And she dies for the second time. Because I guess she died on that plane when the Phoenix Force first entered her. And then there's going to be some shenanigans later on. But we'll hold that stuff off for another episode. Sounds good. Sounds good. So that's the plot. So in terms of the development of Jean and Scott's relationship throughout this book, to me, I feel like really the the crux of their issue is the fact that Scott desperately wants to help Jean but does not know how. And Jean desperately wants to be understood through quality time and she and nobody is capable of fulfilling that for her. And it's through that fissure in their relationship that masterminds can get in and present to her a reality where she is just a lady. She is not the phoenix. She's just a person at, with whom he with whom he can spend time and that's how he undermines their relationship. And Scott just does not have the ability to uh, understand what is happening with Jean Grey and the Phoenix Force, right? Mm-hmm. You know, he's dealing with his own uh, insecurity issues now that Professor X is back and he, always judging uh, his actions. And all Scott can think to do to appease his lady is to say, I love you over and over and again. And like throughout this book, arc, he just says, Gene, I love you. I love you. I love you. Right. And she's accepting it, but that's that's not what she, she needs. needs. That's and not what fills her love tank. Yeah. He doesn't know what to give her. Mm-hmm. So I think a place where we really see the peak of their rela- relationship in this context is that time on the butt in the... Desert. Do you call it a butt? I call it a butte. A butte, a butt. I think you're probably right because butt is an unsexy word. I mean, well, no, butt's a totally sexy (laughs) word, Lisa. So on the butte, I guess, it's it's one of those things where you read a word and you're like, this could not possibly be how it's pronounced. (laughs) But it's that time where Gene seeks him out. And is like, get out, get off of this butte, Angel. I need some time with my man. Right. And and for her. She, her answer to solving their issues as a couple is to let him totally in. Right. But that means you got to let me totally in to your brain. And they had before in their relationship this agreement of you're never going, out of love, you're never going to infiltrate Scott's mind. So, but I think that that is the ultimate quality time like where she's like well i'm gonna you know we can't physically be together all of the time but i'm going to be in your brain full time and you're going to be in my brain and because of that he's able to break the chain eventually that mastermind has wrapped around her because it gives him a level of understanding he didn't have before even if it's just kind of an emotional like a lot of times he's just like i feel like something is wrong and a lot of times he's getting that from gene gray 
like I don't understand what's wrong, but I feel feel something is wrong and he can respond to that. I think it does fill his tank a little bit because he feels like now I can be a little bit more helpful. Well, and I mean, it is a level of acceptance that uh, when someone offers it to you has to be incredibly satisfying. Like, all right, she's willing for, to let this happen. Okay. I mean, it's like and another it also, love act. It's like it's like having sex again for the first time. Absolutely. And, and it gives him a little bit more control of her powers, I think. That, like, he knows how to use her powers better because he has seen them firsthand. Um, but, like, by the end of this story, when Jean sacrifices herself and freezes him in physical place with her ability and just lets this Shi'ar laser cannon pop out of the moon floor and blast her away. Mm -hmm. At the end of this story, like, are you feeling that these two are truly loved? This is a deep tragedy. They are now on an even playing field. Unfortunately, she's got to go. I think it's a, a star-crossed situation, which is, of course, thanks to Romeo and Juliet, the most romantic, the level of romance, <laughs> the highest level of romance you can ever achieve is where one has to sacrifice themselves for the sake of the other. I think what's really interesting about the conclusion of this book where Jean Grey dies and is forever removed from the X-Men temporarily mm -hmm. is that Chris Claremont, as the writer, did not want that to occur. Oh, really? He wanted Jean Grey to be separated from the Phoenix Force, the Phoenix Force go off into space and do its own thing, and Jean Grey returned to the X-Men powerless and, and uh, helpless. Jim Shooter, who was the editor-in-chief at the time, said, that's not a satisfying conclusion to this story. This movie demands sacrifice. This this movie, this plot demands sacrifice. This plot demands death. Right. Oh, that's interesting. Because I mean, that I mean, giving up your powers as an X Men is also tremendously self sacrificing. Like to go like I had this tremendous power and now I'm just like this useless damsel. Right. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I like to me. Uh, I, if, if Jean Grey survived at the end of this, we probably wouldn't look back at the Dark Phoenix Saga as this momentous turn in comic book history like we do. It would just be another storyline because then, you know, uh, a year later, that power would return to Jean Grey. Her, her, at least her telekinetic stuff would come back. Right. Now, Jean Grey does come back, but several years later, I think six years later. Oh, wow. Um, I think another element that's interesting is... Jean Grey's relationship to her desire for physical touch because, and I think it's reflective of um, how repressive of a time it was in comics, like ex comic book characters expressing sexuality because it is a result of her having her barriers down and a side of her evil self is the fact that she she is lustful. Yeah, it stimulates her to use a Claremont word. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I find that interesting because I think if we were, I was to analyze her as a person, like she became, she became a mutant. You become a mutant at um, pubescence. So generally when a person becomes kind of sexually aware, that's when a mutant would also get their powers, which I think is a, a really interesting and complicating feature to have it connected specific, specifically to pubescence. And, um, but that means that she grew up kind of in the public eye where she felt like she couldn't be a sexual person. Hmm. 
You know what I mean? And she, which could also cause a rift between her and Scott because they're with the other X-Men all of the time and they can't have... Well, like, what's interesting about that is if you go back and you read the Stan Lee, uh, Jack Kirby stuff, um, the 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 romantic um, melodrama of that book was Jean's the only woman on the team, <laughs> only teenager on the team. Warren, the angel, likes her a lot. Scott likes her a lot. And Beast likes her a lot. Oh, gosh. And if you read those early issues, a lot of those thought balloons are filled with Scott going like, oh, I think she's liking Warren more. Oh, what am I going to do? I got to say something. I really like her. Uh, and, and, and you know, eventually Gene and Scott come together. And that's why in the early parts of the Dark Phoenix saga, when they go to visit Warren, yeah, the Yeah, he, like, tongue kisses her. Yeah. It's really weird. Mouth to mouth. That is so strange. But and he's like, ooh, you're gonna make Scott jealous. And then like Angel's girlfriend is like, actually, no, you're gonna make me jealous. So by the way, Angel's girlfriend, greatest comic book name of all time, Candy Southern. Oh yeah. She sounds (laughs) delicious and not nutritious. (laughs) One more theme from the five love languages that I think reveals itself in the Dark Phoenix saga is the idea of love as a choice even after a relationship has been corrupted so um right before that big final duel of honor where all of the x-men come up and they face the shiar with all of their various powers and ultimately are up until the very last moment of sacrifice of jean gray they're losing that battle um Right before, the night before that duel is supposed to happen, we get a glimpse into each of the X-Men's chambers and we get to see each of them kind of deal personally with what Jean Grey has done and what the Dark Phoenix has done and the damage that she can do possibly in the future. And they all choose to defend and love Jean Grey despite what has happened. And I think that goes to the this to Gary Chapman's idea that love is a choice. Once you've committed to someone, uh, things can happen into the relationship. You know, uh, they can insult you or there can be, you know, a moment of infidelity or a moment of mass homicide. Mm. And you can choose to overcome that and you can choose to forgive and act out of love despite these things having happened. The Shi'ar government's not going to do that, though. Hell no. Hell no. (laughs) And if I was a government leader, neither would I. Like, clearly this girl in her early twants wielding the power of a god and sucking up stars. She's She's like Galactus. She's just... But 10 times more so because... Galactus at least has the common decency to eat one planet at a time. When you're reading this, the the Phoenix Force is so vague. And it's hard to figure out how much of her actions are being guided by this entity, the Phoenix Force, and how much of them are actually being guided by Jean. Now, obviously, when she goes full Dark Phoenix... The way that the X-Men interpret that is, oh, well, that's this uh, this God being not uh, taking over. That's not Gene's fault. But 
like how much culpability does she ultimately have in this situation? To me, I feel like I don't think that the Phoenix Force is necessarily good or bad. What I think the Phoenix Force is, is absolute power. And And as Chris Claremont says, absolute power corrupts absolutely. I'm sure that he coined that. (laughs) (laughs) He was the first one to put that in ink. Um, So, But I do think that there's this idea of Jean Grey is young. Jean Grey is inexperienced. Jean Grey is a woman and therefore does not know how to handle power. And I think that we see that through Scott's thoughts, like Scott thinking like, Jean cannot handle this and I am afraid of her and therefore cannot tell her, which means like as a couple, they don't have open communication, which I think is damaging. Yes, that's what I ultimately wanted to get with both of these characters, but especially Scott are holding back so much information from each other uh, until they have the psychic rapport. And I wish Claremont would address that a little bit because once they've established the rapport, Gene should be aware of all the doubts and insecurities that Scott has regarding her. And at no point in the story do they sit down and they say, oh, I see where you're coming from now that I'm inside your brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's a big miss in the writing is that the doubts that are clearly on display before the rapport never come back in communication. Like when the rapport happens, they are good and fine and a-okay. I think that, I think it might be because the rapport, the psychic rapport was a little bit of an afterthought because we see the scene in the Butte in one issue where they're having this kind of intimate moment in the desert alone. And then later, we don't actually find out about the psychic rapport until um, Cyclops is like, okay, well, the Hellfire Club has put something that blocks my ruby quartz eyeball power, and I need a way to get out of this situation. And then he's like, oh, yeah, remember that time when we were on the Butte? Jean Grey was like, full-on psychic rapport. I was like, yes, please. And now... Um, I can infiltrate her brain just like Jason Wingard could. So I think Chris Claremont may have written himself into a little bit of a corner and was like, oh no, what can I do to fix this psychic rapport? That, which earlier in their relationship would be a violation, but in this situation, totally necessary. But if you were writing this story and you were building to a climax in which Jean Grey was going to sacrifice herself how would you have ended their relationship so that it was more satisfying on a romantic level? I think what Jean Grey really needed from Scott was acceptance and understanding. And I think if there was a moment where he says, I trust you with your powers and I love you and I believe that you can take on anything and handle anything. I think that would have made a huge difference in their relationship of him just saying out loud, whether he felt it or not, I love you, I trust you, you can handle this. And would you want this story to end on her sacrifice or her murder? 
I think her sacrifice really was the way to go really? because there was just no way to kill her. She had the power of God. She was God adjacent and she admits it. And so I don't think anybody else was really capable of taking her life but herself. I wonder if Galactus showed up and just ate chomped that down. planet. Yeah. <laughs> Not ate that planet, but ate her. Like could Galactus consume her? I think I think he could. Yeah, I think at least temporarily. Yeah, and then for he'd like become six years or so. Phoenix Galactus, and that would be the greatest oh, comic book man. character. I don't know. That might actually have happened because after this book, the Phoenix Force enters all manner of comic book characters. Phoenix Force ultimately enters into Cyclops. I have some kind of vague memory of that. And yeah. then he's like super angsty. He's like. Well, he, then he kills Professor X. Spoilers. Which will be. Is that the second time Professor X had died? He's, he's died a few times too. Every X-Men dies a couple times. Cyclops has died a couple times. Colossus has died a couple times. Wolverine's died a couple times. It's just a thing that happens when you're an X-Man. Oh man, it's a rough life. So, okay, there you are. are, are is, that, is that where we want to leave it off? I think we should uh, do a little, like, we've had a real therapy session. We have analyzed the situation. What like with this, like what have we learned from Jean Grey as a couple? What, like, what how can are, we apply it to ourselves? Exactly, that's what I'm saying. Lisa, I think you're beautiful. <gasps> Your powers are awesome. A W E some. They astonish me. They scare me a little. <laughs> um, but I am willing to go on this journey with you, and uh, you don't need to kill yourself. Thank you, Brad. I find uh, the way that you're leading the X-Men is way better than Professor X. And I think you're better looking than Professor X. Just remember my love language is quality time. Oh, okay. So, um, <laughs> Brad, if I could, I would establish permanent psychic rapport with you. But since I do not have psi powers, oh. um, I promise to be open with you and I am always willing to enter a conversation with you unjudgmentally because ultimately I want to understand you so I can love you better. I think that is a key takeaway for me in this series uh, that you need to be open and when you have doubts, you need to express those doubts so that you can either work out that issue or discover that there is no reason to, to doubt in the first place. Yeah. I also learned that if I want to manipulate someone like Mastermind, I just have to figure out what their love languages are and use that to fill their tank. Mm -hmm. Stay away from my tank. <laughs> so where are we going to pick up in our next session with Scott and Jean? We are going to jump to 1986 to the launch of the X-Men spinoff series X-Factor. This is from uh, Bob Layton and... It is a reunion of the original core X team. We're talking Cyclops, Beast, Angel, Iceman, and yes, Jean Grey. So she's back to life. She's back to life. Uh, you can find these six issues in the Marvel Epic Collection, Genesis and Apocalypse. I think it runs for uh, $34.99. It's volume one of the X-Factor Epic Collection. Um... Now, that trade paperback starts off with an Avengers issue that leads into a Fantastic Four issue, which is specifically about 
the re-emergence of Jean Grey coming back to life. I think we can just skip all that stuff. I want to focus exclusively on the X Factor issues, one through six. The first appearance of Apocalypse as well. The reason I want to focus on these is because it picks up in their relationship almost immediately after the events of the Dark Phoenix Saga. And this is truly where my investment in the Scott Jean romance kicked off when I picked up the back issues of X Factor. In fact, X Factor number one was the first number one comic book issue I ever purchased as a kid. That is awesome. Yeah. That is totally awesome. I have not read X Factor at all. So I'll be curious to see if a love commitment like Scott and Jean's, if you die and then come back, are you still technically a couple? I'm interested. Don't tell me. Don't spoil it. I'll be interested. There is a major roadblock in issue one. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. That is a uh, cliffhanger. Yeah. If I may say. Or a butte hanger. Not a butt hanger. No, no butt hangers. Gary Chapman would not approve of butt hangers. <laughs> so, um, yay. So I'm looking forward to that. Episode one done. Nailed it. Just like our marriage. Yes. Deeply in love. Fisting. Yay. No, we were actually just fisting. Bumping fists. It's yeah, an bumping inside fists. joke. It wasn't, it wasn't the other thing. We're, we're a couple. We have our things. We're and keeping we all... this podcast PG. That's right. Did you notice 13. I didn't swear? Did you notice many jump edits where Brad had to... <laughs> Take out what I said because I swore and we're trying not to swear. I think that is a good a good goal yeah. to be swear-free. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that we're not going to bring up fisting awkwardly. Yeah, yeah, butt stuff. Anyway, so I think as we close our beautiful first session of Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast, I think we've made a lot of progress with our relationship, mine and yours, Brad, sure. but also our relationship with the listener. So if you'd like to send us words of affirmation, you know that that is my primary love language um, and Brad's secondary love language. So if you'd like to send uh, a Brad, for instance, some words of affirmation, where can they send them? You can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. That's M-O-U-T-H-D-O-R-K on Twitter, Instagram, Untapped, Letterboxd, all kinds of places. And you can send words of affirmation to me at Sidewalk Siren. And if you'd like to commit to us and commit to our podcast, where can we follow the podcast? Well, you can find us on iTunes. So subscribe there. You can follow us on Podbean. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at CBCC Podcast. Nice. And a beautiful act of service would, of course, be to rate us on iTunes, uh, a gift, a great gift would be five stars and a night and some words of affirmation in that little form box. And keep finding us on Twitter because I need that quality time. That's right. So that's all the time we have for the comic book couples counseling podcast session number one. So until next time, keep your love tanks full and your psychic rapport open. Doopy doopy doo.